Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for insightful analysis and enlightening discussions. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thanks for joining us. I am the host of the show. Today, we have a fantastic show for you. We're going to talk about the 2016 Emerging Trends in Real Estate. This is a great publication. It's put out by ULI and PwC, and we're lucky to have with us here in Studio One in Atlanta, we have Mitch Rochelle. He is a partner with PwC. We also have Andy Warren. He's director of real estate research with PwC. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us here. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, yeah. It's great to be here. We appreciate you being in. And before we get started, this publication is is fantastic. I've, I've read through. I've read through it several years. It really gives you a forecast of what's coming. It lets you know really what's going to impact the market. Gives you a lot of tips and takeaways. Tell us how this is developed and how many people are involved in this. Millions. <laughs> no, I didn't say dollars. People. Oh. Okay. Anyway, it's, it's over a thousand participants. The number of participants grows every year due to the popularity and durability of the publication. It's a combination of survey respondents. So um, members of ULI, clients and friends of PwC respond to surveys. Um, and then we do face-to-face -face interviews. So we do hundreds of face-to-face -face interviews and we gather all the insightful insights, whatever your, your opening line was from, from the audience. And, uh, but it's interesting is it's all objective. So even if one participant has a specific ax to grind about a specific market, mm -hmm. with thousands of people participating in it, you sort of get the aggregate feedback from the market. So and this thing is a lot of pages, right? I mean, this is a- 90 plus pages. Yeah, it's a lot of material. But we're gonna boil it down to 38 minutes today. There you go, yeah, we'll give you the highlights of it, right? And first of all, I'd like to talk about and of what people think about the market, right? So you're asking market participants what they think about the market moving forward, and you've compared it to years past. So the question we ask in the survey portion is the prospects for profitability. And we've been doing this for a long time. So back in 2014, so asked in 2013, about 2014, two thirds of the market participants had a positive sentiment, meaning they thought the prospects for the following year were good to excellent. Following year, which was 14 for 15, um, they three quarters, 75%. This year, we sort of thought we hit a record, 84% have the view that the prospects for profitability for the market will be good to excellent. The side note is, we asked that same question 10 years ago in 2005 or 2006, and we had the identical response. So you can draw your own conclusions, Michael, and I'm sure you'll have a question about it, yeah. but uh, the sentiment is similar to the way it was 10 years ago. I think the fundamentals are different today than they were 10 years ago, but we can talk about that later. And that's interesting. So if you're watching this on video, you're seeing this chart and these charts, it's amazing to look at the similarities between 06 sentiment and, and 2015 sentiment of 2016. Um, like they said in the movie, I cousin, my cousin Vinny, identical. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So that brings up the question about uh, the sentiment for you know inflation and interest rates and bubble you know and, and where are we? There's been some recent articles that say that maybe we're at the top of the market. I think that we're not in the top of the market in a lot of cycles and a lot of or a lot of sectors in a lot of areas, but maybe in some of the gateway cities and some of the institutional quality assets, we do have some real cap rate compression. What do you guys think? Yeah, I think as we talk to people, the interest rate question was everyone. It wasn't, are they going to go up? It was when and how fast. Mm -hmm. And that was really the concern was how fast. So you know, if we look at our survey results, 
I think it shows 8%, or not 8%, but up to maybe 3% the next year for top. But then that's what it said the last three years in a row. We haven't moved up. Usually it goes down right after the report comes out, so the one we're presenting it's out. So there's not a lot of concern there. Same thing with inflation. We're looking at moderate increase over the next three years is kind of what we ask people. Um, as far as bubbles, people, you know, they would agree with your statement that it's pockets. There's pockets of property types, pockets of markets, but no general overall theme that we're at a bubble. One thing we like to ask people in the interviews is, it, it's kind of a cliched question, but what inning are we in? Mm-hmm. And no one was past the seventh inning. The most clever answer was we're in the... Uh, we're in between games of double header. <laughs> maybe that was clever, maybe it was optimistic, but yeah, yeah like we're in the middle of a double header. So. There's probably bubblettes, if that's even a word. Yeah. Uh, but there, I don't, we don't see that there's a bubble per se, and we'll spend more time talking about the trends uh, in the rest of the show, and you'll see that the fundamentals really are strong. So what do you say to the proponents of, hey, we're close to a bubble, you know, we're near the end of the cycle. I mean, if you look at the normal length of cycles, we're getting a little long in the tooth. What's different today uh, that would make you think that we, the good times are here going to last a, a good bit longer? If you go back to the Lincoln administration, back to the 1800s, uh, when they started tracking economic cycles. How do you know I was that old? <laughs> uh, Lucky guess. <laughs> Lucky guess, exactly. I Googled you. <laughs> but if you go back to the 1800s, there were more frequent ups and downs and the peak to trough or trough to trough however you want to measure them were the the frequency was greater and the duration was shorter and we entered this phase of longer and longer and longer um, bubbles and recoveries and that's just sort of the new normal so it's really hard to say and I always caveat and say I'm an accountant not an economist but it's really hard to say where we are in this cycle so what we do is we just ask people and the pervasive response is there are areas to be cautious about, but the general sentiment is we're in the middle of the game and there's a lot of runway because the supply and demand equation, which is really driving the fundamentals of real estate, are really, really compelling right now. Right. So that's one of the big points, isn't it? I mean, the lack of supply is going to keep NOI growth there, right? You, you, the, the, I once said that the slow growth in the U.S. economy was the greatest thing that happened to the real estate recovery, mm-hmm. and I was destroyed in social media and in mm-hmm. blogs, but I still believe that that's the case. We just haven't had a crazy growth in GDP that feels like economic bubble. Um, we've had market bubbles with compression of cap rates, but that's truly not a bubble. And that's, that slow growth has prevented an abundance of supply, which means we're able to absorb what we build, which is a good phenomenon, which we haven't seen in our collective careers in real estate. That's and, interesting. And you look at it now, we've created more jobs in this recovery than we did from 2001 up through 2008 plus. So we're actually in better shape right now going forward without that imbalance of supply demand. So like you're, you're, to your point, NOIs should continue to go up because demand should continue to stay stable or increase going forward. Right. And then even if interest rates are going to rise, they're still historically low. Right? Exactly. And we built far more homes and commercial real estate product when rates were two or three times where they are right now in real percentage points. Yeah. So um, the... The availability of credit, 
um, is still a fraction of what it was back in the previous cycle. So uh, these are all good facts for a continuation of the trajectory of growth that we're on, which is a healthy trajectory. Good. Well, now I can do the Snoopy dance, right? Now I can do that. Right? <laughs> I'd like to see that <laughs> Snoopy dance. <laughs> all right. So let's get into some of the top trends. And the first trend I see here is 18-hour cities 2.0. What do you mean there? Uh, 18 hours at last year's report, we kind of introduced this concept of 18 hour cities, markets like a Charlotte, Nashville, Raleigh, Durham, markets that were beginning to offer urban type amenities at a much lower cost point. They're attractive to millennials. People want to live there, work there. And it's just this in a year, maybe even six months, this seems to have caught fire. So we included that as 2.0 this year because the sentiment when we ask people about the individual markets we've seen these markets kind of jump up significantly in this year's forecast and so i uh, it just seemed like a good point to bring this out that not only are they attractive to the overall market but the broader scope of people looking at these markets is growing and and the two things driving the um recovery of sentiment in some of these markets and the immigration of people to work and live in these markets is a lower cost of doing business and a lower cost of living. And as people decide where they want to settle when they graduate from college, when they retire, when they make a career choice, whatever it is, they're going to gravitate towards those places that are more affordable. So what we're seeing is a market like Atlanta, where we're sitting, who not been in the top 10 that's gotten into the top 10 because on a relative basis it has many of the attributes that other cities have but it's more affordable and it's um, more reasonable from a cost of doing business perspective. So what are the top cities that uh, your respondents liked for uh, growth? And well, you know then the first one is Dallas-Fort Worth mm -hmm. which is a market that virtually all the Texas markets came through the downturn unscathed mm -hmm. offers a lot of those same amenities you have and this goes along with another trend, but it also offers suburban nodes mm -hmm. that are beginning to show urban um, mm -hmm. amenities and kind of grow through that. Um, Austin, Texas remains near the as number two. It has been for several years. Mm -hmm. Same thing, vibrant urban core, uh, attractive to millennials. Mm -hmm. um, Portland, Oregon, Nashville, Tennessee, markets that jumped into the top 10 for the first time in excellent. this year's survey. Well, excellent. Well, stay tuned. We'll have more of the top trends in real estate. Stay tuned. I'm Michael Bull. This is the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by your friends at Bull Realty. When your business requires proven performance, visit bullrealty.com or call 800-408-BULL. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Thanks for being with us. Today we're talking about the 2016 Emerging Trends in Real Estate Publications put out by ULI and PwC. We have Andy Warren and Mitch Rochelle with us here in Studio One from PwC. We're going over some of the top trends. Number two is next stop, the suburbs. And, and what is a suburb is, is part of the trend here. So, so the definition of suburb, suburb is obviously something that can be debated in more time than we have. So I'm going to skip that. But if you remember last year, the 6,000 folks that watched the 
YouTube video last year. We're trying to drive that number to 10, by the way. <laughs> and the tens of thousands who listened to the show, we talked about the changing age game as being a trend last year, which was millennials and baby boomers alike sort of getting to the point in your life where they have to decide where to live, where to retire, et cetera. There's a continuation of that trend, which it really appears, based upon some great research that ULI has done and some other thought leadership in the area, that the leading edge of the millennials is starting to settle down and buy homes. And interestingly enough, where they're buying homes includes the suburbs. Okay. The problem is the definition of the suburbs that we may think about in, you know, sitcom kind of suburbs mm -hmm. has evolved and suburbs tend to be closer to the urban area and tend to have a lot of the urban feel to them. Thus the question mark in the in the subtitle. But the fact of the matter is we're seeing this beginning of a migration. Um, and what's really happened is, and everybody likes to pick on a millennial, so I don't think that's totally fair, but um, families are starting later, people are getting married later, starting families later. Um, we have some great graphs showing when uh, women are having their first child is later. Um, but there's also some great research that shows when you ask people about where they want to raise their children, it's more the suburbs and less the city. So the research, even the millennials, even the millennials. So, so just think about how old the millennials are. And since families are starting later, we've just sort of, I don't think the American dream is dead. The American dream includes renting. Um, and the American dream isn't all about urban living. So the suburbs are not been, dead. And, it, and it's just a concept of the urban areas are still great, still yeah. offer fabulous amenities. But if you think about providing services that growing young families need, is it more cost effective? to try and recreate that in an urban environment or go to the suburbs where that already exists and they can take advantage of it. And I think they're just realizing that. Yeah. But they don't want to give up a lot of those amenities. So they're looking for that suburb that has transportation, walkability, uh, access to restaurants. And right. Let's go to number three, offices, barometer of change. So. Um, your office here is mm -hmm. brand new and modern, but the fact of the matter is the American office stock is aging, mm -hmm. right? And we haven't meaningfully added to the supply of offices in several decades now. Mm -hmm. So we have an aging office stock. We're also sort of overusing offices. And what I mean by that, when offices were built in the 40s, they didn't have the employees per square foot ratio that we have today. So we have more people in, in some cases, less space. And that's really sort of changed the paradigm or the barometer for office space. And that's really something we're going to see more of uh, in 2016 and beyond. How do landlords cope with uh, more space use? Um, and how does the market deal with that? Um, and I think we're at an interesting uh, junction point with how we're overusing. I mean, go to any office building in a CBD area, the wait for an elevator is considerably longer than it was. Um, my PR guy who I was talking to the other day about the, the launch of Emerging Trends said he walks into offices and he used the term dingy. And he said that offices just sort of look dingy in there. So this whole overcrowding, the, the, the rides on the elevators, the infrastructure just really wasn't built for the populations. And that's sort of what's going on right now in the office space. And then the, the way people work today is mm -hmm. so much different than we're, we're actually probably into the third platform of computing. So people are mobile. They're using unconnected devices, but they're still staying there. Flexibility, working in different teams. That's a, a lot of stress on an old building to try and keep up with that and be able to meet the needs of the tenants. So, so what does yeah. that mean for the office investment market? And, uh, 
it means owners. I think the the here's the good news and here's the bad news. The good news is the demand for office space continues. So if you look at the growth in office using jobs, that's continuing. If you look at the percentage of all jobs that are office using jobs, we're not sort of losing office using jobs as, as in the workforce. So that's a good thing. So that's demand. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is we have aging stock. So it's going to be more about retrofitting and repurposing older stock or getting rid of some of the older stock and trying to figure out how do you configure space to be modern and relevant to tenants. And uh, one of the trends we're going to come to later is like, who are the tenants of the future? And I think you're going to see that that paradigm is shifting a little bit further. Yeah. This report is full of great charts related to, to what we're talking about today. So if you're watching it on video, you're obviously seeing it. If you're listening to one of the 42 radio stations, uh, go to the website uh, when you can, uh, seriesshow.com. Look for the Emerging Trends 2016 show, and you'll have access to these charts. Now, number four is a housing option for everyone. That's a housing option is we looked at that and, you know, the typical dream, what, 66, 70 percent of people wanted to own a home. That's not really fitting for everybody now after the housing collapse of you know, five, six, seven years ago. Now we need to find housing that fits people that may prefer to rent as opposed to own. They still want to be in a single family home. So we've seen the rise in the single family for rent market. We've got an aging population that may want to age in place, but they need certain amenities. So, and we've also got a housing affordability question for a segment of the population. Do we have the right housing stock to match what incomes are? So there's a lot of dynamics going on in terms of where people can live and want to live and the markets and the product that kind of meets those needs I think is going to do very well going forward. And one of the things that's really interesting is if you look at the home ownership rate there's this tremendous focus again on the millennials and millennials aren't buying houses but if you look at across all of the generational cohorts the home ownership rate is falling so it's not just a this it let's blame it all on the millennials across the board there's a bias towards renting um, all you have to do is live through one or two economic cycles and see the value of your home depreciate and it's just going to change your view on whether or not home is a great investment and that's that's played a role in that um, but the interesting thing is multifamily side of the equation we've we have this enormous wall of households that have been formed meaning children have moved out of their parents homes um, for which we haven't built new housing stock so mm-hmm. all that is is upward pressure on rents and the question is at what point do rents go up that they become inaffordable and then the affordability of housing really changes interest rates are going to play a factor um, but just remember, a 20 basis point increase in um, the, the treasury curve is $30 a month. And rent growth, when you rent, can be considerably larger than $30 a month. So mm-hmm. rates aren't going to play that big of a role. But we do have this rate, rate, rent pressure, which may make multifamily inaffordable. So the future for multifamily then, your outlook is what? It's still bullish uh, for multifamily. Um, and what's good about multifamily, even though we have multifamily starts, mm-hmm. uh, we don't have multifamily starts to meet that demand. So mm-hmm. um, multifamily may become inaffordable, but don't forget every year new households are being formed that are going to be demand drivers. Plus, boomers that sell their homes are going to need a place to live. And many of them, as you see in the home ownership rates, are opting to rent when they've sold their home. We're short on the break, but for residential homes, what's the outlook there from this report? 
I think the residential market, I think it just shows how restrained it's been in adding supply during mm-hmm. this cycle. It's come back, builders are building to what they think the market needs. It's matched up. At some point, we're going to have to build more. I think if you look at the forecast, the next it's at least two years out before they're projected to kind of get ahead of this uh, household growth that Mitch mentioned. But no, the outlook looks very good for single-family And homes. the existing home sales are way b- yeah. higher than where they were before the uh, market crashed. Excellent. Well, stay tuned. We'll have more of the trends from the Emerging Trends Report and some tips. This is Michael Bull and the Commercial Real Estate Show. We'll be right back. Would you like to shake hands with decision makers in your favorite commercial real estate sector? Visit interfaceconferencegroup.com for multifamily student and senior housing to net lease and healthcare conferences all over the country. Visit interfaceconferencegroup.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today we're talking about the 2016 Emerging Trends in Real Estate, the ULI PwC publication. It comes out every year. Fantastic. There'll be a link on our site if you want to read the entire thing. It's fantastic. We have Andy Warren and Mitch Rochelle here in Studio One in Atlanta. Thanks for being here, guys. We're on to number five, parking for change. What's that mean as a trend? Parking for change, it kind of ties back into we talked about how office use is being different the parking requirements are changing as people want to be walkable they want uh, less people are commuting by car uh, the requirements for parking is dropping and we're hearing about tech companies going into markets where they just say well we don't need parking and then we're hearing other options where we need parking on Friday because all of our employees are out on site Monday through Thursday but they're gonna be there Friday well that works out because everybody else takes Friday off <laughs> But, you know, there's a lot of... You're not talking about me, are you? Yeah, well, no. No no one at this uh, table. (laughs) But there are just different ways to do that. So we have all this parking dedicated around cities in the U.S., and people are starting to think of alternative ways to either utilize the space or building, if you develop a new property, do you develop parking for maybe with the plan that it won't be parking in the future? Yeah. So I guess I'm not fitting that mold because I have the uh, Beverly Hillbillies truck downstairs <laughs> and the General <laughs> Lee both sitting there. <laughs> well, let's look at number You're six. Showing your Georgia roots <laughs> now. There, there we go. It, it's not a universal trend. <laughs> yeah. And specific. I have a cement pond. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk about number six, infrastructure. Network it, brand it. What's that trend there? So we're not talking about building a wall here. Okay. <laughs> Just to be clear about that. So what we are talking about is this urbanization trend, which is indisputable that we see this gravitation towards suburbs from the suburbs to the to the city from rural to the city from wherever to the city which means you need more infrastructure um some people just think very narrowly about infrastructure like i would and focus on the pothole in front of my house and want that fixed the fact that i think about healthcare, public education other services andy talked about less cars which means we need more commutation whether it be light rail high-speed rail whatever all of that infrastructure requires a tremendous amount of spend so the the network it branded is how does the public sector the private sector um, private equity, how do they all play a role? And one of the things in the earlier trend when we talked about um, the, the, the family formation and so forth, public education plays a vital role in people's decision as to where they want to obviously raise their children because how the children are educated. And um, if urban areas and even broader suburban areas can't figure out how to improve the quality of 
accessible public education, then they're not going to be having people living there, um, you know, through the the growth of their families. Are there cities that are doing that more than others? And you talk about the the brand it, you know, are there cities that that you might want to invest in that are investing more in infrastructure? Um, I think Denver, Colorado is a great example. Okay, um, Denver, Colorado put in rail several years ago. Tremendous cost to the taxpayers, but look what it's done to connect a lot of the different parts of the city and really create an urban center for a city that really didn't have a, a downtown. So that would be an example. Nashville, Tennessee, which is in the top ten, uh, is another example of uh, of a city that's made some spends on infrastructure to make that city more vibrant. Well, thank you. Thank you. There being almost a little more. <laughs> That, that's Memphis. Actually. That's Memphis. <laughs> but that, that's that's There's a bad Elvis and the wrong city, <laughs> Michael. People in Tennessee are all turning off right now. Yeah. But uh, other examples where they've been creative with it is, like Mitch's example of Denver, they have the light rail, mm-hmm. but they've built the bus system to kind of coordinate with that and build off of that, so they're taking further advantage. And other cities are taking in and doing these high-speed ne- high bus networks kind of process to yeah. it's a little more affordable than putting in a light yeah. rail but it yeah. kind of offers yeah well i'm gonna, I'm gonna get to my next subject before yeah. we run out of time because okay. it's a big one food important to me <laughs> food is getting bigger <laughs> and closer oh, what's that let's mean? just be clear about food michael we, we came all the way down here and you haven't fed us so food food may be important to you but we haven't seen that maybe that's well, why it's important. we'll get you some grits right <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, yeah food is vertical farming and this is another we'll, talk, we'll 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 give the millennials credit for this but the concept of wanting to eat fresher uh, organic ingredients has kind of led to this industry of growing food closer to the market it's the farm to table phenomena in an urban setting setting. the only thing you can do is go vertical and it's a little bit over it's past rooftop gardens which have been around for a while it actually is growing items in old abandoned warehouse buildings manufacturing buildings schools and it's right there and the concept for that uh, I think it can only go up as technology gets involved and finds yeah. ways to do it more efficiently. And then you have the um, healthy grocery stores, right, right that yeah. are growing. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, they seem to be more the anchors that uh, we want in some of these mixed-use developments, yeah. right? Farm to and by the way, and you know, I'm trying as hard as I can not to point to the millennials, but healthy eating is as important to boomers and Gen Xers as it is to millennials because yeah. everybody's living longer and it has something to do with the way that we're eating. Okay. Well, we'll get you some fried green tomatoes. And grits. I want grits. grits. And good thing we have good medical uh, uh, health care. Right. Right. I want right. butter in those grits, too. too. All right. Well, stay tuned. We'll have more emerging trends in real estate. Stay with us. The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you in part by Realnex, providing a comprehensive suite of powerful commercial real estate tools at an incredibly low cost. Visit Realnex.com. That's R-E-A-L-N-E-X. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show. I'm Michael Bull. Today we're covering the 2016 Emerging Trends in Real Estate, the ULI PwC publication, very respected around the commercial real estate world. Andy Warren and Mitch Rochelle are here in Studio One. We're on to number eight of the top trends, consolidation breeds specialization. What the heck's that mean? 
I don't know. Andy, no, anyway, no, just kidding. So we talked earlier about the maturity of where we are in this economic recovery. You can't get this far into an economic recovery without the logical thing to happen, which is consolidation. So if you look at the banking industry and where the banking industry is from a recovery perspective, we see bigger banks getting bigger and consolidation in that space. Um, we're seeing it in the real estate industry as well, uh, whether it be uh, – Acquisition by private equity of public companies, the consolidation within the private space, we're projecting more consolidation in the public space, service providers consolidating. And the reason for that is to grab expertise that they don't currently have to get into markets that they're not currently in. And we're also seeing this uh, derivative benefit, which is specialization, which is finding those niche markets where if you can't compete with the big boys, so you do something that uh, is a little bit different medical office, um, sub suburban office becoming medical office, um, student housing, um, senior housing, those kind of niche plays, you're seeing more and more of that in this consolidation phase. Okay, let's get to number nine. We raised the capital, now what do we do with it? Well, they, to the uncertainty in the world, more capital is flowing to the U.S. real estate market. It doesn't look like that's gonna slow down. It goes to with the 18-hour city 2.0, people are looking at more markets, we got better to play, more property types, different ways to access real estate via REIT structures. It's a lot of changes coming on, and it's just going to have to to accommodate all the capital that's flowing into the U.S. Yeah, that seems like there is a tremendous amount of capital, and it's really compressed cap rates, and uh, it's made the, the market uh, mar market really strong. And uh, Well, let's look at number 10, return of the human touch. One thing we talked about, and we talked about it last year, was the technology change. Mm -hmm. We've got a lot of technology being implemented now. A lot of data is available. If you look back over the last 10 years, how much more information is available on a local market. But we get down to the point where it doesn't matter how much data you have, how much technology you implement. If you don't have the people to make the right decisions, it's not going to work. So each time, and especially as we get longer in a cycle, we're thinking, okay, we got to have people that understand this and how it works. And you think about raising Gen X as moving into a position of management as the boomers retire, the millennials are entering the market. There's a lot of experience that will probably be leaving the real estate industry in the next, you know, 10, 5, 10 years and getting those people ready to take that uh, next step and lead us into the next cycle of that. So they can meet with people in person and talk on the phone instead it's, of texting. That's and exactly. Yes. What's fascinating yeah. about that is if you study it, and again, I'm not a sociologist, I'm mm -hmm. just an accountant, but if you study that human behavior, what you realize is the way people meet one another, perhaps for the first time, has become digital. Mm -hmm. But the way relationships develop, is sort of still analog, right? Yeah. So the face-to-face -face business meeting still exists. It's not dead and gone. And what we're seeing, and we heard from market participants, is we're, there's actually a trend back to that, sort of back to the future perhaps, around sort of the analog side of the business enhanced by the digital connectivity. So you're saying the 9,000 followers I have on Twitter are not really my friends? No. Oh, Just okay. because they like you doesn't mean they like you, okay? okay. All right, now let's get to best bets. 9,000 followers? <laughs> this is why I know it's low. I, know. Uh, I only have like 2,000. Now you'll have a lot more. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah. What's your Twitter account? We're going to put it right on. <laughs> James, put it in the lower third. I want more followers. Our expected best bets in 2016. Uh, number one is going to secondary markets. 
Yeah, so the whole theme here when we talk about defense and offense is really this gravitation, if not a rotation, towards secondary markets. Mm -hmm. If you look at the top 10 markets in the survey, there are very few names that are the traditional gateway cities. New York's not in it. Boston's not in it. Um, Washington, D.C. is not in the top 10. Nashville is. Atlanta is. So these are, forgive me because I'm sitting in Atlanta, but these are viewed by foreign investors and sort of institutional investors in many cases as being sort of secondary markets. Mm -hmm. And they have as much popularity, if not more popularity in the eyes of investors than uh, those primary markets, which is a good thing for spreading that capital a little bit more like peanut butter across the United States. And a real real desire to look for those markets that are on the cusp of moving up a tier. Uh, mm -hmm. Pittsburgh's a good example. A lot of qualitative example of people looking at Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. Detroit, great example. Um, Columbus, Ohio. So there are these markets. What What's the next, next Austin, Texas? Right. So Raleigh-Durham looks like it may be the next Austin, Texas, Nashville. But all of these villes, Nashville, Knoxville, Louisville, really interesting markets in terms of the fundamentals um, and the urbanization, the population growth, the cost of living, cost of doing business. But the number one city from the respondents was... Dallas, Texas. Okay, okay. All right, now let's look at number two. Take a deep dive into the data. So here's what's interesting about data. In the last two years, we've aggregated 90% of the data that's existed, that exists, okay? And that's just data traffic. What's really fascinating is we've only tapped into one half of 1%, or as real estate people would say, 50 basis points of that data. So there's a tremendous amount of data that's out there and available. And I'm not talking about the real estate industry. I'm just talking about every time you click, every time you go, mm -hmm. every time you stop to get coffee and you have your app open that's giving you directions, mm -hmm. that's data that's aggregated about where people step, stop, why they stop, where they go. Mm -hmm. All of that data is gonna help make decisions about the future and the real estate industry is just starting to figure that out so go follow the data that's our best bet that's a good tip there's a lot of sources for that out there and a lot of new okay. ones coming on right so technology is, is not our enemy right it's not it's an enabler, <laughs> it's an enabler. not a disabler yeah. yeah and that was one of your uh, tips last year right, right. yeah uh, one of the trends so well it's interesting we're going to have some more tips for you so stay with us i'm michael bull this is the commercial real estate show we'll be right back Excelligent, the resource professionals like CCIMs, CBRE, JLL, Colliers, and Bull Realty use for market intelligence. Commercial Search is the site to market and find available properties to buy, sell, or lease all over the country. Visit CommercialSearch.com. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Show, our final segment of the 2016 Emerging Trends in Real Estate, the ULI PwC publication. We have Andy Warren and Mitch Rochelle here with us. And what is another best bet that comes out of this report? And uh, that is middle income multifamily housing. Where's the tip there? So before that, first of all, the theme music, which I can't get out of my head, Michael, yeah. should be changed to happy birthday because this <laughs> is the fifth anniversary of the Commercial Real Estate Show. Yes. So Michael and James, happy birthday. Thank you. Back to uh, the, their, their tip. So we talked earlier about um, housing and the cost of housing. So think of this as 
housing that is affordable as opposed to affordable housing, okay? Mm -hmm. And so when you think affordable housing, you think of government subsidized housing, but we have a housing affordability challenge in this country. So there's an opportunity if housing can get created, whether it be for rent or for sale, that is really sort of affordable for middle income levels as opposed to you know the, the two extremes, there's an interesting best bet play there. But they're not building B apartments, right? And that's exactly. not necessary. Yeah. So it's really a matter of figuring out what the right formula is for the income level so okay. that they find it. Uh, so it might be micro or it might be- Could be smaller, yeah. Yeah. could be farther away, right. yeah. could be you know, could be something, could be not amenitized, but there's gotta be a way to create some more affordable. Interesting. Housing. And another tip you have is go long on REITs. Looking at, you know, as we look at an interest rate environment that's a little unstable right now, but we look at the underlying value of the assets, a uh, number of REITs hold, there's an opportunity there as these stocks get beaten down, typically because they're lumped in with the other financial sector uh, stocks. So the opportunity is there if you look at some of them or in these markets that we see growing in these property types that we think are going to do well going forward. So an opportunity to kind of get in there and take advantage of that mispricing yeah, in 2016. Yeah, I've often thought of that as well. When you see the stock market take a dive and the properties, the REIT zones didn't change, right? And their income didn't change, right? The, the one thing about REITs that are interesting is a lot of buyers of REITs buy them as fixed income alternatives. Mm -hmm. So they tend to have a trading pattern that's similar to bonds and not like necessarily like real estate, not necessarily like other equities. Um, but if you just think about them, the fundamentals of real estate are strong. And if there's some underpriced REITs out there, they're an maybe an interesting play. How important is water? Water is the new oil. New oil. Like in, I'm 140 characters or less. Water. <laughs> but um, I think climate change is one of those topics that really finds itself into the dialogue in the political space, but just functionally, if you think about it, um, water is important around land use, and you don't have to look past the headlines from uh, the last few months in California. It's, it's a considerable issue for the industry to tackle, more focused on it this year than last. It's very much a price and distribution yeah, issue, right. so it will take time to work it out, but it is how it gets worked out is important. Okay. Is there another point that uh, you'd like to leave our audience yeah, with? Yeah, so what's really interesting is, and just, just a fun fact for you, but it's going to change the landscape of real estate. More jobs created in the last three years by companies, I said it earlier, with um, 50 employees or less than companies with 1,000 employees or more. So the focus on who we're going after from a tenancy perspective um, is going to change. So there may be questions about credit quality with smaller companies, but most of the companies in this country are privately held. There isn't a lot of information about privately held companies necessarily. So real estate folks have a hard time grappling with that. But one of the best bets focus areas for this year is going to be focusing on smaller companies um, for tenants. Um, that's going to be an interesting play. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting play because there's a lot of opportunity there. And it's not as sexy as going after the huge tenants, but yeah, they're creating the jobs, they're creating the economy. But there's also tenants that are aggregators of so and incubators, so there's some interesting plays there for 2016. Yeah. Well, great. Well, gentlemen, thanks for joining us here in Studio One today. Always a pleasure to be here, Michael. And, You're welcome. And great. we had better weather, and, and we'll have to feed you before you go. <laughs> I, I'm on grits <laughs> and fried green tomatoes. <laughs> All right. Well, excellent. And thanks for joining us out there. Yes, it's our fifth anniversary. You can believe it. We've been on the air for five years now, so thanks for that. We're on 42 radio stations, iTunes, YouTube, the show website, commercialrealestateshow.com. Thanks for joining us. And be sure and join us next week. We'll talk about the U.S. office market. Until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh and join us for the Commercial Real Estate Show.
The Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty Commercial Advisors, a great place to do business. Visit bullrealty.com. Realnex, a comprehensive and powerful suite of commercial real estate tools at an incredibly low price. Visit realnex.com. That's R-E-A-L-N-E-X. Excelligent, the resource professionals use for commercial real estate information. Visit excelligent.com. That's X-C-E-L-I-G-E-N-T. Commercial Search, the source to market and source available properties for sale or lease. Visit commercialsearch.com. For more information on these great companies or for additional videos, podcasts, or articles, visit CREshow.com.